everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast with Kent Dobson. I'm really excited again today because I'm doing part two of Stuff That Helps. What I mean is stuff that's helped me personally, ideas, books, people, maps, poems, all kinds of stuff, because I want to pass it on. And sometimes I do anyway, footnotes, making allusions, quotations, but I really want to turn my attention to some of the things that have influenced me, particularly in the last few years, that I think is really helpful. And that's what I'm doing today. So part two, I want to talk about um, hope. I want to talk about hope in the age of great turning. In other words, I want to talk about the work of Joanna Macy a little bit of her work. She's um, an eco-philosopher, Buddhist scholar, activist, incredible, incredible woman, has many, many books out there. The first book I ever read by hers was her memoir, Widening Circles. Highly, highly recommend. I love memoirs anyway. That's actually where I started with her work and then picked up a few others like Active Hope, which is kind of what I want to talk about today. And let's see another one I'm looking on my my stack here, Coming Back to Life, which is a little bit of an extended version of Active Hope. Anyway, I highly recommend her work, but I want to try to summarize some of it and some of what I think is powerful and most uh, helpful in this in this the great turning that we're in. That's what she calls it. So anyway, that's what that's where we're going and. I want to start really with a personal story because her work in particular is if I'm if I'm honest if I ask how has it helped me my the short answer is I'm not exactly sure but it's it's put a frame around some of my own psycho spiritual upheaval I guess I would call it some of my own doubt discontent grief loss and the beginnings of something new, new seeds being planted in the heart, in my work, in my life. She, the way she describes transformation and change and cooperating with the transformation and change, it's the framework that I think I've found helpful. It's sort of like saying, oh, that's one way of describing what's happening to me. Now, I do that with a lot of different authors. And so... Probably a few of my episodes to come will 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 function a little like that, like a frame. But I, I love how she describes change and transformation. And I'll I'll give you sort of the brief cycle and and think about it much more like the natural flowering of something than a rigid systematic um, industrial growth kind of mechanism for change. Maybe the best image is that of a dandelion. So she says that the pattern of transformation change often has four seasons or four unfoldings, beginning with gratitude, that somehow a return to the gratitude, the ground of your own existence, the miracle of your own existence, seems to be a necessary ingredient. It, it grounds you in the earth like the roots of a dandelion or of a flower are, are beneath the surface, rooted in something real. And from that comes the experience of vulnerability, difficulty, and pain. That the paradox of being a human being is that on the one hand, your life is a miracle, and you can turn toward that in gratitude. On the other hand, your heart gets broken. The world is painful. And we must learn to honor our pain. That's what she says. Or I might phrase that, turn toward the grief of our own life. And in that pain, in that grief, in that season, as the flowers beginning to grow, in fact, we begin to see our own life and the world with new eyes. So there's something, some kind of alchemical mixture, like a cauldron 
that's necessary to see the world differently that has something to do with gratitude and pain and allowing those to work on us and allowing our own grief and pain to do its work on the heart, the soul, that leads to a, a new way of seeing the world. And from there, that's not enough. That's just the flower beginning to unfold, seeing the, the world in a new way. It's at that moment that the seeds begin to grow and are released in the wind like a, like a dandelion. And she would call that going forth. That any kind of, I don't know, insight, new way of seeing the world, if it's not let go of and, and drifts out into the world and then planted somewhere, it just remains an idea. It's just a clever new way of looking at life but it doesn't get planted again. And therefore the cycle doesn't sort of continue. And by cycle, I mean the big cycle of change and transformation. So those four things, gratitude, honoring pain, seeing with new eyes, and going forth. That's the basic premise of a book like Active Hope. And I, I want to talk about each of those things, but first let me just share briefly my own, a bit of my own story maybe some details that aren't in, in Bitten by a Camel, just from the last few years. So I was out a few years ago to, I was out at a bar with some friends, and one of them had decided to get serious with his life and had decided to go to seminary, which is, I don't know why that makes me laugh. Like, I'm going to get serious about life, I'm going to go to seminary, okay? And we're sitting there and actually I really respected his decision and, and his passion for wanting to make a change in the world through the institution of the church, through a local church. Because I mean, after all institution, blah, 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 you're just dealing with other human beings at the end of the day. And he wanted to serve other human beings. And I respect that enormously. And I was a pastor at the time. So I'm sitting there in the bar. We're talking about this. He's talking about his kind of hopes. And he says to me, what does it feel like to make it? I was like, make what? He's like, you made it. And I still at this point had no idea what he was talking about. He's like, you did it. I was like, did what? He's like, you made it to the top. You have a church. You have a mega church. That's like the goal. What's it feel like to have reached the goal? And at first, you know, if I'm, if I'm very honest, at first I was like, this is absurd. Like, you're going to seminary because you want to get on some upwardly mobile track of achievement and want a megachurch, and I've now, I'm at the top, and you want to know what it's like up there? That's why you're going to seminary? You know, of, co of course I'm pointing out that he's the problem, which is what the what the ego always does, especially the unhealthy ego, finds someone else to blame. But I think actually the question itself cracked something open in me. And I think on the one hand, I was maybe in a little denial about what I was doing. Why had I said yes to a megachurch? Because if you know anything about my story, I was a part of a church here in West Michigan. This was Rob Bell's church. We were friends. We worked together at the beginning, and then uh, I went off to, to graduate school and came back, and then eventually he moved on, and the church asked me to take his job. And, and I did. Why? Well, motivations, or maybe I should just speak personally, my motivations are mixed. I don't know why. I mean, some of it, if I'm really, really honest, if I go back to the last podcast I made, there's power, possessions, and prestige in a role like that. Thousands of people sit there each week listening to you. You've got a several million dollar budget. Uh, I had a flexible schedule. If I'm real honest, that's part of the package. Power, prestige, possession. So of course, his like pointing out that I quote made it to the top, I'm going to deny. No way. There's no way that I that was somewhere in my 
thinking or even in my unconscious. I'm just a pure saint doing it just for the love of people and the truth. No. And I think as I'm thinking about that story now, that that actually, it worked its way into my heart a little bit like a wedge. And I was already beginning to feel questions like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Or as St. Francis would say, who am I? And who are you, God? Who am I and who are you, God? These were like really working on me. And and I was in um, maybe like the stages of, of grief. <laughs> the first one is denial. You're like, this is not happening. My life is great. My bills are paid. You know, what more do you want? I mean, come on, man. Y- you know, you even get a book budget. You can just click on Amazon all day long and read up, you know, what, what's, what's the problem? But there was a problem and, and it was coming out in ordinary conversations. I really didn't have an answer for this dude. What is it like at the top? And actually it was like I was getting vertigo. I had in fact made it to the so-called top, even though I, you know, I hadn't planned on it in my conscious mind. I wasn't climbing some ladder there. I was, but I had vertigo and that's, in, in some senses, archetypally, as I'm talking about it, that's as it should be. That's a, really a significant part of growing up. So I started following my curiosity about this same time into the work of Bill Plotkin, and I eventually signed up for one of his retreats called Wild Mind. You should check it out yourself, animus.org. whole list of programs run, um, that are rooted in Bill Plotkin's work who I learned about from Richard Rohr. I actually asked Richard Rohr, because I, I met him once, and, and I was like, hey, what, what do you think about Bill Plotkin's stuff? And he's like, oh, you should definitely do it. And for some reason, I was in a place where I needed, like, maybe it was like fatherly approval, like, it's okay, son, you can do this. And I don't know, that, that one conversation with Richard really changed my life, though I'm sure he wouldn't even rem- remember it. But it gave me a kind of permission that, I was needed internally. I needed to give myself permission, but I was sort of putting it on him, which is what we often do. Anyway, I signed up for this wild mind retreat. So there I was in New Mexico at 9,000 feet. And I was conscious, I think, of the vertigo in my life. I was. And I was troubled by what I was doing for a living and why I was doing it. And if something else was waiting to be born. That was my sense, but I didn't know what it was. And when you're at 9,000 feet and the air is pure and you're doing all kinds of, you know, practices and, and talks and conversations that really shift your ordinary consciousness, strange things happen. And I was out by a stream and I'm just walking by the stream, just noticing using my my four windows of knowing, which I've talked about in the past, and just trying to open myself up to the natural world, which is such a deep part of my childhood. I grew up in the woods uh, in Virginia. That's where I felt most at home when I was a kid, just out in the wild world. But it felt like that part of my, my life, I had maybe tried to shut down a little bit. So I'm out by a stream, nobody is around, and I begin to cry. And, you know, I, I've been... You know, I might tear up like at a at a movie. I might, you know, a good song, you know, Sigarosa's movie, you know, gives me the chills and I might tear up, you know. Uh, but cry, like really, really cry. And that door, it's like a door all of a sudden open, like a trap door is maybe what it felt like. And I fell into this, what felt like, bottomless pit, what I would call grief, grief that I didn't even know was there. And I cried and wailed and slammed my fist into the stones and the water's edge until I couldn't cry anymore, until I was crying and laughing at the same time. And if you were there and you were to say, what are you so upset about? I had no idea. I had no earthly idea. I think in some sense, I was grieving that I had no contact with grief, that I had not, I wasn't even grieving the conflicts and pain in my own life and my own story 
and uh, my own family, my own family of origin, my own uh, misplaced desires, my own sort of hopes that never, you know, came true or whatever. I don't I have no idea. I, it was a, a deep well I didn't know was there. That's my point. And I felt it felt right. It like it felt right in the body. Like the body wanted to grieve, like it wanted to shake. It wanted to heave as if something had been pent up in there for years and maybe even longer than that. Now that I'm into sort of Jungian stuff and sort of the collective unconscious, I mean, maybe in one sense, my grief, it, it wasn't even so personal. Maybe it was connected to my ancestors and their ancestors, this blockage, this inability to touch upon the pain of the world and the pain of one's own life. And I think when I say pain, I mean the heartbreaking pain, the beauty and uh, the shadow and the light, the darkness and the light to be overcome by that. That's what happened to me by a stream at 9,000 feet in New Mexico. And it, I didn't have words. I didn't, I didn't know what happened to me. I didn't put it into a nice, neat package. I didn't, I didn't really ha even have an explanation, but I was really curious about it. And it opened up, I mean, as I'm thinking about it now, it really was the start of a, of a new path, but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that I was beginning to see my own life differently. And it wasn't until a few years later that I came across Joanna Macy's work and I started reading about this pattern of change, gratitude, honoring pain, seeing with new eyes and going forth. And I felt that, not that I had, that it explained my life, but for the first time, there were some words around the relationship between feeling grateful about the mystery of your own existence the and the heartbreak of it the beauty of your own life and my kids and my spouse and and my health and the fragility of all that at the same time and not to mention the personal pain but the pain of the world the the heart it's like the like the world has a, a heartbeat of pain and it's in the background. Like you don't notice it at first, but then all of a sudden you, you can feel the heartbeat of the world a bit and the pain of the world, the pain of the people that you run into even in the freaking grocery store. Like, but anyway, she was, she gave me words, I think for the first time. And I was able to say, at least in a very small way, that this experience in New Mexico, along with a few others, I think what happened to me is that I had now had a little more access to this wellspring of grief that was there all along. I just was doing a really, really good job of suppressing it and denying it and trying to keep a lid on it. But once, it, once the cat was out of the bag, once the lid blew off, I felt I could return to that well and needed to return to that well. And it was the beginning of me seeing my life differently and even the world differently and my job differently and the church differently and my path differently. And I was like, okay, there, this cycle that she's trying to give words to seems to be true. And if I just continue on with the cycle here, I think in some respects, I begin to go forth. In, in other words, begin planting the seeds in the soil. In other words, changing some concrete things about my life. Quitting my job or writing a book or trying this or signing up for that. In other words, if this is real, it needs to find root somewhere. It needs to be grounded just to find out how real it really is. So I guess um, 
I'm not trying to make it too simplistic with this one story, but I do like the pattern that she's describing. I love that it feels more natural, less clinical than most sort of Western ways of talking about change, which is very industrial. It's um, the nuance, and maybe maybe it's because she's a woman. She's... Uh, she comes at this from, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to make a really strong distinction, masculine, feminine, but the feminine energy here, the archetypal feminine energy, which is uh, traditionally much more rooted in the natural cycles of life and in cycles themselves, like the cycles of the moon and the cycles of the body. That's the way that's what that's what I guess really rings true about this way of talking about change and transformation. And one of the things she says is that on the one hand, this path or pattern can happen quite naturally. Like I'd never heard of Joanna Macy, and here I was, like wailing by a stream, and grief was working on me in some way. So sometimes it just happens. But if you want to grow into an adult and into a more conscious adult, some attention, this is really her idea, some attention has to be given to this as a process itself, especially if we want to be agents of change and transformation. If, if we want to uh, be the change we want to see in the world, so that's Gandhi, of course, we have to turn our own... Uh, we have to turn our own life, we have to turn our attention toward the change that's happening in our own life. And also, as we think about that externally, we have to bring some conscious attention to how we change and how things change and how the world changes. If, in fact, you want to be an agent of change, you may not. You may be like, eh, which is actually where I want to start. That was, by the way, my intro. So. Her phrase, she has two that are compelling for the age that we're in. She calls it the great turning, and sometimes she calls it the great unraveling. And the beauty of of her stance is that she admits she's not sure which one we're in. She's, She's spent an enormous amount of time as an activist turning her attention toward nuclear waste and nuclear arms and environmental issues, rainforest protection, among many other things. And she, as a, as a highly educated, sophisticated, very aware, very smart woman, knows the facts, we would say. She knows that the world is getting sicker, not healthier, and it's not exactly good news. And a lot of that news seems to be that we are, are, in fact, in a season of great unraveling on every level, from the biosphere to economics to politics to the family unit to, she's a systems theory person, to systems themselves. They seem to be coming unhinged, unglued. The whole system is unraveling. She also sees, at the very same time, a great turning, a great turning, a great awakening. In fact, leaving one entire era, the industrial growth revolution or the industrial growth um, sort of worldview, mechanistic worldview into at least the very beginnings of the seeds of a much more cooperative, eco-friendly, eco-interconnected universe, which is actually the truth. That's the scientific truth. But she sees that human beings, some of them, are beginning to awaken and not only acknowledge that we're in a season of great turning, but working as active agents for change and transformation. I think if I can put it even more simply, she sees and also I think is inviting people into a life-enhancing way of being in the world. What does it look like to, with all of our attention, mind, heart, spirit, soul, spirituality, politics, economics, everything, 
what would it look like to turn toward a life-enhancing society and culture rather than life-destroying, which is the one that we're in. So who, what will win out? She says, I have no idea. I have no idea. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are without hope, and that doesn't mean that we're not responsible as a species, as a species whose consciousness is shifting and changing toward what is life-enhancing. That doesn't mean we don't have some responsibility to do what we can with what we have where we are. That's Roosevelt. Okay. Now, a couple more things about the great turning or the great unraveling that I think are really, really critical. It tends to lead to three responses by people. And maybe um, you can even jump back and forth between these three responses. Here's number one. It's fine. It's a big world. We're pissing in the ocean. Come on. I don't think we have any, we we barely understand the world that we live in. It's going to be fine. We've been here a long time. And yeah, we might be causing some issues, but really business as usual. And actually we should trust that business as usual in the end will be okay. That's one response to the anxiety, the existential anxiety that we all feel around the unraveling of things. That's one response. Number two. We're effed. We are totally screwed. This is maybe nihilism a little bit. Totally screwed. There's nothing we can do. We're pissing in the ocean. You know, get solar panels on your roof. Big freaking deal. Meanwhile, these massive global industries are just pumping billions of pounds of chemicals and toxins into the into the wind uh, and soil and waterways. Come on, drive a Prius. It's ridiculous. Or three, we're not sure how this is going to turn out. We're not sure. But let's be forces for active change because we never know. And as an example, just as this is uh, in the world of uh, social, social issues, but think what a monumental and rapid leap forward America experienced with LGBTQ rights and particularly with marriage. Now, I understand we have a long, long, long ways to go. Maybe that's just the tip of the iceberg, but I'm telling you, 10 years ago, not possible. 25 years ago, I mean, forget about it. 50 years ago, this, no, this was on no one's radar, really. And how quickly society and culture can change, in my view, for the better, greater inclusion and... Um, and honoring of other human beings almost overnight, but not in a vacuum because people were saying things like, we're not sure how this is going to turn out, but we're going to be forces for active change. And really, I think that that requires a certain amount of faith in human beings that there's a lot of shadow in all of us, but there's also a lot of good. And, and it's not all fight, flight, freeze, you know, screw it, whatever. Although we all have these things, we also have really deep, some would say God-given or uh, biologically given capacities for love, cooperation, understanding, altruism, looking out for the other. It's all in there. And let's, let's trust that that can awaken because um, in a sense... Even protecting the water, air, soil, land is self-protective. It's not one or the other. It's not, um, I can have no concern for myself or I have to be totally concerned about the other or the world or the earth. It's actually a form of self-protection. When the earth is healthy, I'm healthy. And hopefully, if I'm healthy, I'm helping protect the health of the earth itself. So... Anyway, that's just a little bit of um, the background to this fourfold process. And how does she come up with it? Years and years of activism and helping activists who were burned out, hated their job. Some of them were in great despair, feeling extremely hopeless. How do we um, 
find energy once again for the soul's work. That's what I would say. Or for, uh, for the kinds of deep and precious passions we have and our own way of manifesting those toward a life-enhancing culture. How do, we, how do we feed that and help people? And that's when her fourfold process began to emerge. Some attention and practices around gratitude, some attention and practices around honoring pain, seeing with new eyes, and going forth. So I think I'll just, um, I made some notes here. I want to look at them. And what I'll try to do is maybe summarize. I understand this, <laughs> this podcast might be a bit of a long one, so hang in there or come back to it later. So let me try to say some things about each of these around uh, maybe just the practical nature of some of this stuff because let's just start with gratitude. How do you cultivate gratitude in your life? And that's difficult, I think, for people who have a sense of entitlement and um, who have privilege, who, who have a certain amount of privilege, people like me. I'm a white male in America. I, I have, in, uh, by no choice of my own, have a certain amount of, of privilege that other people don't have. So that's hard to begin to turn toward a sense of gratitude. And I think also for people on the other end of the spectrum who have experienced uh, much more difficulty uh, economically, socially, culturally, who oftentimes have been victims of real concrete abuses by the system and also by sometimes other human beings. So equally difficult on both ends of the spectrum. But in, at least in her view, some concrete attention toward gratitude is essential for deepening one's experience of life and for reactivating the mystery of change and transformation. Here's a little quote of Joanna Macy. More resources have been consumed in the last 50 years than all of human history. Yet we're not any happier, and depression has reached epidemic proportions. And she says the antidote to this kind of consumerism and sort of greed is cultivating a life of gratitude, turning attention toward the very, very ordinariness of life and touching upon that ground. Things, very simple things like clean water, like food, like family, like a single friend, like a sibling, a child, a lover, a partner, and much more than that, the natural world itself, which gives itself away freely to us, which can be tasted and touched and thanked very directly and very concretely at any moment in time. One of the things that I've been doing for the last few years that I found helpful is a gratitude walk where you're not necessarily, like if you're a theist, if you believe in, uh, if you believe in God or even um, even if you're unsure what that means exactly, a lot of times you might be encouraged in Christian circles to thank God for something. That's often the arrangement. But in this sense, a gratitude walk is thanking the thing itself for being the thing itself. A tree for being a tree, a bird for being a bird, a blade of grass for being a blade of grass. Paying attention again to the mystery and miracle of life itself. So some of her suggestions really just to get this going is even to make a list of something I love is. I mean, as simple, I mean, it sounds like, how can you be any more simple than that? But if you don't do it, you don't do it. If you don't bring your consciousness, if you don't bring gratitude into your consciousness, then you're not grateful. Something I love is fill in the blank. And maybe that's hard to get going, but that's the beauty of a practice. If you do this more than once, 
You try it every day for a week. You do it for a month. Something begins to awaken and you begin to touch upon the world differently. I think many of us, and of course, if you watch the news, if this is it's, it tends to have the opposite effect. I need to hunker down and protect myself. The world is not safe. That's the fundamental message of the news media on the right and the left. The world is not safe. Yet the world, as Mary Oliver says, is calling out your place in the family of things, calling out again and again. The wild geese are calling out again and again your place in the family of things. And gratitude is something that begins to awaken that and deepen that and begins to ground our life in something beyond our privatized individual existence. Which I think leads me into just a few brief comments about honoring pain. Once you touch upon the gratitude and mystery and miracle of life itself, you also begin to feel the pain of the world, your own pain and the pain of the world itself. It's like, oh, it feels big. Like Mary Oliver again saying, tell me about your despair and I will tell you mine. Most, most people want to avoid that. Eh, I'd rather not. I'll just watch TV. I'll watch somebody else's despair and pain called reality TV so that I don't have to look at my own. But she says, that's no way to grow up. That's a way to remain small and privatized and shut down. So there are all kinds of blockages to honoring pain. And, I, and she has a list of them. I'll, I'll read some of them to you. So um, first of all, not just personal pain, but when you think about the pain of the world, plants, animals, flowers, water, air, there are all kinds of blockages. And, and here, here they are. It's not that bad. It's not that dangerous. Eh, it's, you know, it, it might be, uh, you know, it's not as healthy as it could be, but it's not that dangerous is a kind of blockage that keeps us from feeling the pain. Here's another excuse denial mechanism we might use. It's not my role to sort this stuff out. That's somebody else's job. I'm just a humble pastor, school teacher, you know, stay-at-home dad, stay-at-home mom. You know, I, I've got my thing. That's somebody else's thing. It's not my job to sort it out. Here's another one that is really um, obvious to some people and not to others, but I don't want to stand out from the crowd. This is actually a major thing, uh, capitulation versus authenticity. Most of the time, what qualifies as being an adult in America is capitulation. I don't want to stand out from the crowd. I don't want to be seen as a tree hugger or whatever, fill in the blank. Here's another one. The information, the in other words, the truth, threatens my commercial, political, or personal interests. In other words, I don't want to take this information seriously because it's going to threaten my way of life, where I shop, how I shop, my politics. I might have to swap parties or I might have to say no party represents me, period. And then I'm, I don't fit in. I don't fit into American culture anymore. Here's another one that can really block us. And this is so upsetting that I don't want to think about it. This is so terrifying that I don't want to think about it. If it's really that bad and, and the grief, if I open this door and the flood comes through, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I, I'll never call out. I'll never get out of bed. And that is a very, very real one. That happens to me from time to time. Here's one that happens to me all the time. I feel paralyzed. I, it's like the information is overwhelming. Uh, and I just feel paralyzed. I, I can't do anything. I, everything feels useless. So I just freeze up and I, I don't know what to do, and at that point, personally, I just shut down. I'll just think about something else. I don't want numb. And here's another blockage. It won't make any difference anyway. So these are all blockages to turning toward and honoring our personal pain, 
the pain of others and the global pain, the pain of the world, even the pain of nature, which might be maybe a new concept for some of you that nature feels. Maybe not in the same way we would define or explain feelings, but perhaps it does in very mysterious and rich ways. So here's a quote from Joanna Macy. I want to face the truth, even if it's painful. That should be a rallying cry of the 21st century for those of us committed to spirituality, spiritual growth, life, <laughs> uh, God, by whatever name you want to use for God, waking up, growing up, fill in the blank. I want to face the truth, even if it's painful. Because if I try to avoid the pain, I will not be facing the truth. So it's going to hurt. And she says, that's normal. Pain for the world is normal. And even all of the scary stuff that comes with it, like outrage, alarm, dread, despair, anger, pounding your fists, screaming, grief that feels bottomless that you might not ever get off of the shore of some creek, that kind of thing, actually ends up having the opposite effect. To let it out begins to connect us rather than have the opposite. Increased disconnection, disillusionment, isolation. It actually connects us. It connects us to one another. It connects us to the earth. It connects us to what is real. It connects us to the truth. So I'll give you two sort of practices, one from Joanna Macy and one that's um, that I've been working with. So here's a really simple one. You get together with your friends and you speak your feelings. Such as, when I think about my world, I feel. That single fill-in-the-blank, when I think about my world, I feel. This is sacred. This is a, a, a sacred kind of conversation. And, and if you're like me, something in your soul craves real conversation. Like, when I think about my world, I feel fill-in-the-blank. And to come back around that question several times. When I think about my world, I feel. When I think about my, my worst fear is, my worst fear, to bring those into the light of consciousness rather than to shove them down just beneath the surface where they ache and they ache and they ache and they end up taking us to some pretty dark places like depression, anxiety, fear, guilt, and shame. So let them out of the closet. Here's another good one that she says. Try this when speaking in an uh, intimate setting, a small group, your friends, your family, whatever. I have, the way I avoid my feelings are, the way I avoid my feelings are, wow, you know. Do we have to go there? Tell me about your despair and I will tell you about mine. Well, if we want to grow up and we want to heal, yeah. If we want to be agents of transformation, yeah. We have to be willing to do things like this. Here's one more ceremonial practice. And maybe I'll, uh, I won't go into tons of detail. I could make a whole podcast just on this, but I will sometimes go out and even encourage people I work with from time to time to go out on a grief walk, to go out with the intention of grieving one's own life and sometimes grieving the pain and loss in the world, period. So you set your intention. You go out to a wild, a semi-wild place, and you begin to have a conversation. Sometimes it, it can help just to tell your life story, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, to the wild world, and allow the wild world to speak back to you. This kind of give, uh, giving uh, and receiving that can happen with the mystery of nature itself. This might seem really weird to, to your conscious mind, to your ego, but something of the heart and the soul comes alive if you'll give yourself to a practice like this, walking through forest and uh, fields with the intention of grieving the pain and loss of the world, not to be overwhelmed by it, but to be changed by it. So these kinds of um, gratitude practices and honoring pain practices, it's not all about practice. Sometimes it's just about allowing oneself to feel and that alone cracks the door open, she says, leads to seeing with new eyes. 
And I think uh, she tells a pretty profound story in the book that's worth repeating here. So she, she has a friend who was really involved in rainforest protection, probably in South America. I don't remember if she says that specifically. But he did so initially out of a lot of anger. And anger, whew, anger is needed in the world. Anger, uh, it's okay to feel angry that the world is being burned up for the sake of uh, unnecessary materialistic uh, purchases that make us feel good, give us a temporary pleasure, but deaden the soul. Yeah, that's worth getting angry about. Yep, you should be angry. But he said he was one day out in the forest, and he felt at the time, I'm protecting the forest. I'm out here doing my job, protecting the forest. And he's standing out in front of these bulldozers. And behind him is the rainforest itself. This thousand, thousands and thousands and thousands of year old, um, deeply interconnected ecosystem, untouched by human beings, is behind him. And he turns around and has a kind of epiphany, but that's not like the epiphany of just intellectual. He can feel it throughout his whole body. And what he says is that I could feel that the rainforest was protecting itself. It's not that I'm protecting the rainforest, but the rainforest is protecting itself. I am the part of the rainforest recently emerged into human thinking. And that changed his life. That's seeing with new eyes. That's letting the grief of what's happening work on you and work on you and work on you. And then all of a sudden, you begin to see the world differently and you can never go back. He, was, he basically had a kind of mystical, that's my interpretation, a mystical, numinous encounter with the interconnected web of being. You might even say God, if you want to bring in a little theology here. But when I say God, I mean God in all things. This profound moment that I am simply the rainforest, conscious of the rainforest. And, at, and what I'm doing is protecting myself. I'm not protecting this object out there, this abstract, quote, natural resource. I'm protecting myself. And the rainforest is protecting itself through the consciousness of this two-legged, you know, being just recently emerged from the rainforest. So this is, uh, I think, a profound story. And that kind of insight, I think, causes us to re-examine what we mean by family, community, human society, the web of life. And Joanna says, seeing with new eyes often takes the form of moving from individualism to interconnectedness. That the flow is from individualism, which our culture worships, to interconnectedness, to profound, the, first of all, it's a scientific reality, the profound reality of our interconnectedness, but it's like our consciousness begins to taste it, to touch upon it. She says, this is often what happens if you'll allow the pain of the world to break you open. You think you'll be destroyed and buried in, under an avalanche of despair, isolated down there under the snow, suffocating. But actually, as the avalanche sort of uh, knocks you down, what ends up happening is that you suddenly have an experience of interrelatedness, interconnectedness, and so forth. And, and she says more that, that this is part of the great turning itself. That, this is a quote from her, that we are having a kind of emerging, connected consciousness of radical independence. That's a, that's a mouthful. An emerging, connected consciousness of radical interdependence. That's part of the great turning. That's where this work can lead. And, and you could say that's the universe or God or whatever, the mystery. That's where the train is heading. Now, you can shut it down. 
There are all kinds of sophisticated ways to shut it down. But if you'll let gratitude and pain work on you, if you'll let reality work on you, that what begins to dawn on your life, on the way, on the way you see life, is that, wait, I am a radically, I'm a radically interdependent being. Yeah, you are, and I am, and we all are. And if you want to put it uh, more simply, you, you end up having a larger view of what it means to be of the self. I, I get, actually, she says that. You have a larger view of the self. You move from egocentric to egocentric. From egocentric to egocentric. Oh, man. It, it, I know right now I'm, I'm already starting to back, backtrack, like backtrack. I think this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. The, the world is, is becoming increasingly privatized, individualistic, egocentric, narcissistic. What's the point? And those are the very voices that keep me shut down. And when I'm feeling that way, the invitation is to let that go deeper. You either shut down or you go deeper. And to go deeper requires you have to walk toward the truth, which means you walk toward the pain. So that's a little bit on uh, seeing with new eyes. Let me see if there's anything else I want to uh, suggest. Oh, here's some practices. I've actually done all of these, so I'm speaking from experience here. Try writing a letter to the future. Try writing a letter to your great-great-grandkids, telling them what you value and what you're doing for them. Try it. Try to write a letter to your great-great-grandkids. Oh, man, it's freaking hard. Here's another uh, more interesting one. You have to really kind of let your imagination fly with some of this stuff, but try writing uh, a letter from the past to you. It's a bit weird. Um, I had a hard time when I first uh, tried this. I had a hard time getting going, but once I started, something kind of uh, beautiful uh, emerged. It was sort of what is the past, any point in past, take, take, take 10,000 years ago. And use your imagination and say, what would it say to you now? What would the past, how would the past speak into your life? Um, here's another one. You can try writing letters from the earth. What would the earth like to say to you as a human being? Or try writing a letter to the earth. I would like to write a letter to the earth. What would I say? What would I say? Why why engage in something like this? First of all, because I don't know if you've noticed, but most of us spend our time doing totally useless things like surfing the internet and working on our profile pic and all this kind of nonsense. And we know it's nonsense. You know, it's like some bullshit enterprise. Why would we turn to something that can, I don't know, that's spiritual or psycho-spiritual or... Um, why would we do that? Because the, the very future depends upon it. That's why. And I think some of these practices, though they might seem a bit unusual, shift us out of mainstream culture, even for a moment, and broaden our view. In other words, we see the world a little differently. So um, I think one other point along those lines, letters, uh, from the past or to the future. She says one of the things that is almost inevitable with this kind of uh, transformative work is that we have a larger view of time. We have a, a sense of deep time, both future and past. And and right away, that leads us into um, a much more mystical kind of place. Even if you think about uh, a word like um, kairos, it, which is used in the New Testament of the Christ coming into the world. And Christ is not Jesus's last name, another podcast for another time. Um, but it says when the time was ripe and the word is kairos, which is like the fullness of time, not chronos, which is like chronological time, but the fullness of time, that's deep time. That's, that's time beyond time. That's time that is touching upon the eternal. And we need that kind of consciousness to reawaken in the world in ordinary human beings if we're going to chronologically survive as a human species. 
we need a much deeper view of time, which is both humbling and can be inspiring at the same time. And the final one here is going forth. And I hope you're still hanging with me. You know, I'm trying to give you stuff that helps, but there's a lot. There's a lot in these, in Joanna Macy's work, and I'm trying to summarize it as best I can. So let's talk about going forth. And at the heart of going forth is being a visionary person. And I like this phrase from Bill Plotkin, but he says to be um, artisans of cultural change. And that requires a kind of deep vision. And I don't mean like sitting around with your, you know, in a work session, like brainstorming. Let's throw some things on the whiteboard about vision. I mean allowing something personal and transpersonal to emerge from the depths and to be activated out in the world. That's a person of vision where it's a sense that I'm being fed by a stream that, that I'm not actually in control of, but I'm a participant in. And with every ounce of my being, I'm trying to bring forth this life enhancing vision in the way that only I can bring it forth in the world. And that requires a lot of contact with imagination and with soul, which is what I'm committed to, and, and a lot of my other work is committed to, conversations about engaging with soul. But in other words, we need dreamers. We need dreamers. Like, uh, here's a great line from Rumi. Close both eyes to see with the other eye. Which, <laughs> talk about uh, a new way of being in the world. Close both your eyes, then you can see with the other eye. That's that's the kind of vision that I think is possible really for every human being. And, and I think communities can have this kind of third eye vision. But we have to allow the our creativity and our imagination to come alive. And that might require, you know, burn, burning your television set or something like that. And, I, you know, I don't, I have, I'm, I have a television set, so I'm a hypocrite, I suppose. But you know what I mean. Um, turning our attention toward the precious seeds, the, the precious imaginal seeds of a future not yet born. That's kind of what's uh, being asked. And, and I think uh, another thing that Joanna points out in The Going Forth is that this kind of fresh and wild imaginative vision emerges from the muse, from the mystery, but needs two feet. It's like, I forget who said, uh, be, uh, be a mystic with practical feet, something like that. That's kind of what I have in mind. Unless it's grounded in something concrete. I am doing X. I am bringing this forth in this way. I am making this, or we are making this, or we are trying this practical feat. Then it remains kind of pie in the sky, visionary language, but it never really comes to anything. That's why she says you have to go forth. Um, in Bill Plotkin's work, we call these experimental threshold crossings, <laughs> which is, okay, I think something is emerging. I'm trying to get a grasp on its shape and form and what's being asked of me personally. And experimentally, I'm going to put this out in the world. I'm going to cross the threshold of making this real and see if it has any legs. See if it begins to grow and, um, and be life-sustaining and life-giving for me and for other people. But you have to cross the threshold. You have to experiment, be willing to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. And this might all sound like, whoa, like, like, what the hell are you talking about? This can be something as simple as, I'm going to cook my own meals. I'm going to shop at the farmer's market. Not once a year, you know, and have brunch with friends and, you know, carry my bag so I can look cool. I mean, I'm either going to be a life-enhancing presence in the world or I'm not. Or so those are the very, very concrete things. I'm going to plant a garden. Oh, I live in the city. Well, how would I, how, how would I do that? Is there a creative way of doing that? I, I saw this, this suddenly popped in my mind. I, there are all these beekeepers who keep hives in New York, in New York city. It's probably happening all over in, in cities. I just love that image of these 
living colonies in the middle of Manhattan, in, in these dense, highly urban environments, someone saying, I'm going to bring some life here. And, and you know, now all of a sudden I wanted to go into how awesome bees are. I have bees myself. Um, and what they do for the, the climate and the flowers and the fruit trees and, and whatever. I mean, just, I just love this. That's a very practical, concrete, wildly imaginative thing to do in the world. But either it's concrete and physical or it's just an idea. So we're trying to get out of ideas. And we live in a culture that I think is in love with ideas and not so much in love with concrete action. So you, it's probably more important with this notion of going forth to think small and think big at the same time. What's a vision that will take me an entire lifetime and I'll, I still won't be done, but what's something I can do today? You know, that, that kind of twofold approach rather than, you know, sort of being caught up in the drama of, of the bigness, which is necessary, is there something I can do today? Can I walk to work? Or whatever. Uh, or, or you know, those are mainly environmental things, but we're, we, we're, I guess we're responsible now of thinking of all things, family systems, social systems, economics, politics, everything. So I'm going to have a conversation with my kids when they're home from school. That's what I'm going to do. That's life enhancing. That's life enhancing. That's feeling the pain of what it's like to be an adolescent in this sick, sick culture of ours. And I'm going to turn my attention toward that pain and see my kids differently for the first time. And how am I going to go forth? I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to talk to them. That's how concrete and small uh, what I'm talking about can really be. And these are, this is like seeds, like planting imaginal seeds out in the universe. I sometimes, this isn't what even pops into my head from time to time. I'm simply, my responsibility is to plant seeds, as many of them as I can, wherever I can. And I might be called upon to water and cultivate some. Some might grow up and come to nothing. Well, that seems a bit misplaced, but not all of them will. Some will grow into something that um, brings more life to me, to other human beings, to the earth itself. That's the sort of thing we're talking about here. And with that said, the smallness said, she says right at the end of Act of Hope, let's dream some impossible dreams. Here's an impossible dream. That all nuclear weapons on earth be dismantled. That's an impossible dream. Here's another impossible dream. That all forms of energy are 100% clean and renewable. That's an impossible dream. What we need are impossible dreamers. They're not pie-in-the-sky optimists. Joanna Macy is not an optimist. She says, I don't know what's going to win out. Could be the great unraveling. Could be the great turning. Who am I to say? I'm caught in this liminal space, but I'm going to be a warrior for change, a warrior for the human spirit. That's Margaret Wheatley. Or Joanna Macy loves the, uh, the Shambhala warrior prophecy where uh, this is a Buddhist prophecy that one day Shambhala warriors will be sent out when things are at their absolute worst and the imagination has died, then Shambhala warriors will be sent out and they will be involved kind of almost secretly in every area of society as agents for cultural change. And that's the era that we're living in. And those Shambhala warriors dream impossible dreams. I think the at the very seat of our humanity is the capacity to dream impossible dreams. And I think the world now is calling out for us not to just dream uh, the impossible dreams of going to Mars or something like that, although that's, that's wildly imaginative, I admit. And not just the impossible dreams of <laughs> becoming a billionaire. I want to be a billionaire. That's as, you know, as quote impossible as we get, but, but the kinds of impossible dreaming that's being asked of us is toward what's life enhancing, not life destroying. And that is going to take every ounce of our uh, 
human creativity and capacity. So finally, I think um, I'll just say something real simple. For Joanna Macy, after all, the title of her book is Act of Hope. She says hope is a verb. It's not a feeling. It's not being an optimist. It's a verb. That's it. You do hopeful things in the world. That's it. You want to be a hopeful person? Do hopeful things in the world. Even if you are in a state of anxiety from time to time, despair from time to time, anger from time to time, grief, no matter what your, uh, your passing emotional state is, hope is a verb. Don't let those demons at the gate, those guardians at the threshold, to use some Joseph Campbell mythic language, don't let those guardians at the gate with their messages like, you can't do it, go back to sleep, Watch TV. What's the big freaking deal? You're not going to make a difference anyway. You deserve a break today. Chill out. Don't let those guardians at the threshold block you from the biggest vision you can have for your life. So all that to say, all that to say, I hope this stuff helps.